BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. is the Tom Hartman program. So the Detroit News is uh, publishing the story that this plot put together by these right-wing militia cranks in in Michigan uh, was planning on kidnapping Governor Whitmer and uh, taking over the government of Michigan or something like that. I mean it's it's it's, it's very bizarre, and yet it's not. And I'm wondering to what extent this ties back to Donald Trump's April 17th tweet, Liberate Michigan. Remember that? Liberate Michigan. And, you know, we all know the militias and the Nazis and the, and the racists follow Donald Trump uh, obsessively, compulsively. And, and here we are. This is a cancer in the United States. This is a cancer that we have had in this country for a long, long time. Domestic terrorism that is fundamentally based in, in uh, racism and, and, well, to some extent, even sexism. Uh, misogyny, but in particular on racism. We had the Klan back in the 19th century and, the tw- and through the, the 20th century. And now we've got, you know, the Klan has been reinvented under a variety of names as these right-wing militia groups. And the idea is, you know, as Mike Lee said, we're not a democracy. We're a republic. You know, we're run by a small group of people. We're actually a representative republic, which is one of the definitions of a democracy. But anyway, there, this, this is extraordinarily destructive stuff. This is very, very dangerous stuff. And you go back, you look at what Tim McVeigh did when he blew up the Oklahoma City uh, federal building. In my humble opinion, I mean, you know, just two years before that, you had Waco with David Koresh, and I believe it was a year before that you had Randy Weaver getting killed by federal officers. Koresh and Weaver were both basically, you know, right-wing, hardcore, white supremacist, armed insurrectionists. 
And the book that these people were reading back then, the book that actually animated Tim McVeigh, according to Tim McVeigh, was a book called The Turner Diaries. And uh, The Turner Diaries is a novel. It's a rather poorly written novel. It's kind of on, the, on par with Ayn Rand's writing. You know, it's, it's uh, juvenile. Uh, it's the kind of stuff that you would expect coming out of a high school student or you know, uh, a first attempt by, by a young person. Its worldview is so simplistic. But basically, in the Turner Diaries, you've got this, this story of a, a white guy, a, a group of white people who are, well, actually, they're trying to rebel against the government. Where it starts is they blow up a federal building. And I believe it was in Oklahoma City. It's been 20 years since I read the book. Um, but it might have been someplace else. It might have been in the Midwest. But they blow up a federal building. And in response to that, the administration, and this was not a partisan book. It's not Democrats and Republicans. It's just, you know, like Americans, you know, the, the, the white nationalists versus America. And in response, in response to this group, this militia group blowing up this federal building, the president and the federal government pass laws banning all guns and start taking guns away from people. And as a result of that, the white militias get activated. They rise up. The, the, the guys who have got you know, 10, 15 assault weapons in their basement and, and 1,000 rounds of ammunition, they rise up, they go out in the streets, and they start killing people. A second civil war erupts. And, you know, half the book is devoted to that. And then at the end of the book, the white guy militia members, the guys with the assault weapons and all the bullets, have succeeded in killing almost all of the people of color in this country. African-Americans, Hispanics, Jews, that, you know, he's throwing them into that category in Turner Diaries. And at the very end, you know, the strong, proud white men are standing there holding their guns and saying, we have taken back our country. So that was the Turner Diaries. Then, you know, a few decades after that, there was this book that came out of France. It was called Camp of the Saints, which is a reference to it. That's a biblical reference, but it's basically the last guys standing. We're the ones who are holding the space. And it's another racist screed. I have a copy of it around here someplace. It's, I, I haven't read it all you know, cover to cover like I did Turner Diaries, but I've read good chunks of it. And most of it is describing people of color in extraordinary terms. I mean, extraordinarily filthy terms. Uh, and that's one of the words that appears in the book over and over and over. It's filthy and, and infested and... and you know, just, just these descriptive phrases that are very, very similar to the way that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis in the 1930s referred to gypsies and Jews and gay people and, and other minorities in general, but particularly the gypsies and the Jews. It's how they were described by Hitler as basically animals, as cockroaches, as subhuman. And it's about, a race, it's about a race war. And these two books are like the Bibles of this movement. 
Now, Gretchen Whitmer is not black, but she's a woman, and her lieutenant governor, Garland Gilchrist, is black. And so, you know, you can see where a group that has just steeped itself in this white supremacist, racist mythology would be thinking, these are the people we need to take down. We can't have women in leadership. That's, you know, one of the fundamental tenets of, of the white supremacist worldview. Because it's not just a white supremacist worldview. It's a white male supremacist worldview. It's like this cult in the Catholic Church that Amy Coney Barrett is a member of, where the women are referred to as handmaids and the men are referred to as the heads of the family, you know, following the teachings of Paul from 2,000 years ago. I mean, you know, we're... we're we're taking our cues from ancient Bronze Age sky god religions that defined our tribe. In this case, you know, it was originally it was the, the Hebrews, right? Uh, defining, but you know, it's every 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 religion's stories basically are the stories of their own people, and the assumption is always that their people are the people who are chosen by God. And that kind of idea, and you'll find this in, I mean, literally every, every religion, every culture, um, the, the creation stories are, yeah, I mean, like in, in, in Genesis, in the creation story, Adam and Eve were the first people, right? No. They married their son off to a woman from the town down the street. They weren't the first people. They were simply the first in this, in this context, the first biblical people, let's say, or the first Jewish people. So these are, the creation stories are always like this. So now we've got this new creation story, essentially, this new, this new arch story that has been subscribed to by literally millions of white American men. And it's going viral. And now QAnon is the latest incarnation of this. So we go from Turner Diaries to Camp of the Saints to QAnon. And at every stage, it gets more bizarre. And that's where we are right now. And that's a dangerous this space. This is the Tom Hartman Program. with us is Professor Jason Stanley. He's the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, the author of four books, most recently, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Uh, his uh, Twitter handle, Jason, I-N-T-R-A-T-O-R. Um, and the uh, just a FYI, Andy Z and Jason Stanley will be having a conversation, How Fascism Works and How to Stop It, as part of the Brooklyn Book Festival, sponsored by Revolution Books. If you go to revolutionbooksnyc.org. Jason Stanley, welcome to the program. I believe you've been with us before, have you not? I've been with you several times before. Good yeah, thank back. you. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's been a long, long year. In fact, thank you. I, I recall. We have talked in the past about, you know, your 10, the 10 items in how fascism works of, you know, where, where fascism comes, you know, the mythic past and, and all these, these, uh, these pieces to it. Where are we at right now in this spectrum or in this process? Or, or would you use a different metaphor even to describe it? Well, many people, when I published this book two years ago on fascist politics, said that it was alarmist. 
And when you look at the reasons they gave for why they said it was alarmist, I'm afraid we're seeing those reasons fall by the wayside. For example, they said Trump doesn't attack the democratic processes. The Trump administration is not seeking, as we see in other countries like Hungary and Poland, to seize the courts, to rig the election. Uh, Well, I think we're seeing a very strong effort to do just that. Uh, We're seeing the party, the Republican Party, become a cult of the leader. Uh, become a very explicit cult of the leader. Uh, so we're seeing uh, we're seeing it transform before our eyes. Uh, we're seeing Republicans less and less willing to even give lip service to defending democracy. Uh, so uh, so the idea behind fascist ideology is that it's a cult of the leader. The leader promises na- national restoration in the face of humiliation and challenges and socialist and leftist challenges and uh, brought on by liberals, Marxists and minorities. And we're seeing that kind of politics and we're seeing it transform into policy and possibly even the result in a stolen election. I'm curious your take on kind of the cycles of history, how this typically plays out. I mean, we saw the rise of fascism in Europe in the 30s. It was defeated through a brutal and bloody war, but it was defeated. Um, we've, we've seen, you know, you saw, you know, the rise of Pinochet, you know, Reagan's great experiment back in there. Was it Nixon's great experiment back in the day? And uh, it was defeated. Is, is, is there a certain, uh, inevitable is probably too strong a word, but um, is it highly likely that if if uh, if Trump actually succeeds in you know having the states or the you know Congress or the courts or whatever declare him president regardless of the outcome of the election and does get sworn in and we do become a fascist or quasi-fascist state and and I think you could argue effectively that we're already more than halfway there um, that that it's going to get a whole lot worse over time or that that then becomes the beginning of the revolution. I mean, you know, Hungary had only been a democracy for, what, 10 years when Orban took it over? Um, you know, we've been a democracy, arguably, for 240 years. Uh, oh, how no, do you see only this been playing a out in a worst-case scenario? Well, we've only been a democracy since Jim Crow ended. Uh, I mean, we had, we've had large portions of our, of our voting population disenfranchised. We have a long, we think always of interwar Europe. I don't think that's the right frame. I think we should think of the aspects of U.S. history that so influenced uh, the interwar European fascist movements, particularly in Germany. We're seeing, uh, we're going back to the voter suppression of minorities. I mean, you know, in some sense we never left, but uh, massive voter suppression. Uh, the I, the uh, handing power to a p- party that has minority support uh, and 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 rigging the system so that it retains control no matter what happens. So I think the right the right model is uh, the, the, we should look back at our own history for the antecedents to this. After all, Paxton calls the Ku Klux Klan arguably the first fascist organization. The 1920s Ku Klux Klan, whose ideology we are seeing yet again, uh, is, uh, is a fascist ideological organization. The kind of Christian, white Christian fascism uh, in U.S. history is the ideology that uh, I think 
were returning to. And then as far as the administrative system, well, we have plenty of models all around the world. Hungary, you mentioned, uh, there's, there's uh, Latin American countries. Pinochet is a good uh, idea. This kind of, uh, you know, when capitalism makes, immiserates life, for so many people, then you have to have a culture war dog and pony show for the immiserated masses to entertain them uh, and a powerful police force to suppress dissent and uh, and attempts at overturning the status quo. And so this kind of system where you have sort of uh, powerful business elites harnessed to uh, a sort of white Christian evangelical uh, extremist movement uh, seeking to prevent uh, prevent uh, people from uh, from uh, rebelling against the system, seeking economic and racial justice. This is the kind of structure that I think is emerging. And autocratic rule is the norm in the world. Uh, what's unusual, rare, uh, just uh, really un- almost unique is democracy. So you know, having an autocrat rule on behalf of financial elites to keep down the labor movements, to keep, uh, to, uh, and throwing, throwing uh, religious, uh, throwing culture war benefits uh, and, and, and using race to divide uh, those immiserated by their policies. Uh, this is a common, this is how you would expect a kind of American autocracy to emerge. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Professor Jason Stanley, his book, How Fascism Works. Um, uh, Professor, we have about a minute and a half before we're going to hit a hard break here. Um, You you just, to a large extent, I think, just described the government of China. And uh, is is that the new model for the world? Uh, Well, I think China is a different model than what we're seeing here. China is actually an efficient authoritarianism. What we're seeing is not an efficient authoritarianism. We're seeing a sort of clownish authoritarianism with a powerful police force. Seeking to, uh, you know, China, it does, you know, has a re, uh, for all its brutality and anti-democratic, anti-human rights uh, concentration camps, which which I decry in the most powerful possible terms, at least tries to do something for many of its impoverished citizens. What we have here is a kind of grotesque, more Latin American kind of mm-hmm. autocracy with right, with a, a lot of with periodic protests flares that will be controlled by uh, by military and police that's more the model so what do we do about it? i would expect well i think we have to appeal to people's democratic instincts we have to bring in conservatives liberals leftists progressives in the first instance and say we have to return to a rule of law state this corruption endemic corruption and thievery has to stop on all sides and then we have to be prepared to protest nonviolently on the street in case of a stolen election. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Professor Jason Stanley, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them is the book. And check out his event at uh, revolutionbooksnyc.org. Uh, Professor Stanley, thanks for dropping by. Tom Harvin here with you. If I wasn't explicit, I just want to say this one more time. I am of the opinion that the reason why Mike Lee and other right-wing Republicans, and you will hear this all over the dial if you tune in to right-wing hate radio, are saying that 
the United States is a republic, not a democracy, is not some arcane debate about what James Madison said back in the 1770s or the 1790s. What it is, plain, simple, right on its face, right in front of us, is Mike Lee and the Republicans preparing us for Donald Trump stealing the election and saying, you know, we're a republic. We, we operate under the rules, and the rules say the Electoral College picks, and the, and the Constitution says that Pennsylvania can choose to, to, put Pence, uh, to put Trump and Pence back into office, even if the majority of voters in, in Pennsylvania say no. And Pennsylvania's legislature has actually created a commission to do just that. And there's other states that are looking at it. And this is no longer a secret. It's being reported like, you know, in mainstream media. So anyhow, I, I just, you know, want to be very, very clear about that, that, uh, you know, that you get what's going on here because the stakes are really, really high. Laura in Linwood, Washington. Hey, Laura, what's up? Well, um, the gentleman that was on a little while ago talking about uh, the Christians that believe that uh, God made uh, Trump be president, uh, I want to take the story a little further. I had some friends in an apartment building that I was living with, very good friends and, and uh, good hard workers. We did a lot of stuff, you know, with events and things in our apartment building. And they they kept trying to get me to come to their Bible study classes that they had. And one day, one of them told me that when Trump was conceived, God had already divined him to be the... Uh, the Antichrist, and that they were going to vote for him because that was a good thing to do because God wanted it because the world is coming to an end. And therefore, they will be Trumpettes and not worry. They won't have to worry about any of these poor people that are in cages down in Mexico and Texas or all the people that are starving or anything like that because they're on their way to heaven. And they couldn't understand why I, I just couldn't believe that. I, I said to them, I said, I don't think my God did that. I don't know what God you believe in. And they said, we'll pray for you to me. And two months later, I moved. I couldn't stand to be around them. And, and, and this, this is not really new. <sighs> I'm sorry, finish your thought. That's all right. They're kind, gentle people, you know, and I can't believe how they could... Just, I mean, it's okay. Everything that's going on is okay because they're going to go to heaven pretty soon. You know, they're going to, the, the, it'll be over with this world. <laughs> this is this is not new, Laura. This kind of thinking has been around for for quite some time. It really gained a foothold in the American consciousness and 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 Western European too, for that matter, in the late 1800s. There was this huge religious revival in the 1870s, 1880s, and early 1890s, out of which came uh, the Seventh-day Adventist movement, with Ellen White, a, who said the world is going to end, and you know took her flock up to the top of the mountain to, to watch the world end, and it didn't happen, and so she kind of reinvented the religion. Uh, it brought us the Jehovah's Witnesses. There, there are a number of smaller sects in, in Christianity that emerged out of that, and and 
kind of laid the foundation for things like, you know, Hal Lindsey's 1972, I think it was, book, The Late Great Planet Earth, in which he's he's saying that, uh, you know, biblical prophecy means that we're in the end days and all this kind of thing. And in fact, in the 1980s, when James Watt was the interior secretary under Ronald Reagan, right now our interior secretary is a guy who used to be a coal lobbyist. He's selling off our public lands just like James Watt was. And James Watt was selling off federal public lands to mining and, and drilling interests for pennies on the dollar. These guys were making an absolute killing and pouring contributions into the Republican Party. And a reporter cornered James Watt and said, you're despoiling America. You're ruining our national lands. Why would you do that? And James Watts said, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's easy enough to find the exact quote. He said, we're on the verge of the, of the uh, rapture. And when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things new. So it doesn't matter what we do to the earth because Jesus is going to make it all pristine once again. And that, that kind of thinking is exactly what you're describing there, Laura. I'm hearing two stories from Christians, um, from befuddled, uh, deluded Christians about Donald Trump. The first is the story that you're telling, which is he's actually the bad guy. And he's here to screw things up because you've got to have that war. You've got to have that war that starts in Armageddon um, before you can have the return of Jesus. And then the other, and that's not the most common story among Christians, but it's out there. The more common one is the King Cyrus story. King Cyrus was, I believe, a Persian, you know, an Iranian king who took in the Jews when they were being persecuted and, you know, didn't try to convert them. They didn't convert him, but he, and so he was never, you know, one of us kind of thing, uh, or even explicitly on our side, but he protected people. Um, and, you know, through the process. And, and so what they're saying is, yeah, Donald Trump is not a moral man. He's not a Christian. He's an adulterer. He's a thief. Um, you know, he's, he's broken virtually every one of the Ten Commandments. Um, he's, you know, he doesn't read the Bible. He doesn't even, you know, two Thessalonians, really. Um, you know, that kind of thing. But, he, you know, he may be an SOB, but he's our SOB. Uh, he's our King Cyrus. And both of those stories, I think, are just incredibly destructive. And, and it's, it's so unfortunate they're being promoted. And then now you add a third one to that, which is the whole QAnon thing, which is also claiming to be rooted in Christianity, saying that, you know, there's Hollywood uh, celebrities and Democrats who are eating children, drinking their blood. This is the old story, literally, that was in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was written in 1902 by Tsar Nicholas's intelligence services to provide an excuse for Tsar Nicholas to crack down on Jewish moneylenders and bankers in Russia in, in uh, 1902. And they were, in many cases, presenting some of the opposition to him, uh, to the extent that it was. And that's what Hitler used. I mean, the, you know, the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, Hitler required it. He republished it. It had to be read by school children. It was, there were movies about it. And, and it basically said there's, you know, the, the Jews are eating children. They're taking the blood of children and using it to make matzah, which they use for the high holy holidays. And this has been reprised, reinvented with a patina of last days-ness to it as part of the QAnon conspiracy. And it's, we got some really toxic stuff going on here. And Laura, thank you for, for the call and for, for highlighting that. I think the larger point here is People are wondering, why have we gone nuts, right? Why is this happening? 
And I think it's a very straightforward answer. And it's what, you know, I quoted Tucker Carlson earlier as pointing out that America has become unbalanced. That is to say, the rich are, are obscene. The top 1% own 79.3% of all the wealth in America. The bottom half of us own 1.5% of the wealth in America. And when that happens, when people feel like, you know, hey, I should have a good life. My dad had a good life. He worked at a tool and die shop for 40 years. He retired. He owned his own home. He took vacation. Why can't I have that? When people are asking that question, the easy answer is because somebody did it to you. Because somebody, some, you know, there's, there's some group out there that's conspiring against you. And the story that Donald Trump told white American voters was, it's brown people. It's immigrants who are stealing your job. That's, that's who it is. So we should, we should put their children in cages. And back when it was Ronald Reagan, Reagan was saying, oh, it's black people. Reagan said, doesn't it, I'm paraphrasing, but you can look up his quote, doesn't it infuriate you when you're standing in line at the supermarket, you know, with the money that you've carefully saved, and right in front of you is some big young buck, which was his phrase for a black man, buying beer and, and pretzels, or uh, yeah, I forget exactly what he described, um, but it was, you know, not veggie, veggies and fruit, with his food stamps. And, you know, and then Reagan went off on his welfare queen thing about the black woman who had the Cadillac and had a hundred different social security accounts, which didn't exist. But when, when people feel like they are getting the short end of the stick and middle class, working class people in America have been getting the short end of the stick for 40 years now as a consequence of Reaganomics, they don't look at large structural issues like, hey, did somebody change how our economy works? No, instead they look at groups of people Oh, it's them. And the QAnon people are saying, oh, it's Democrats. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This is how you end up with armed militias conspiring to kidnap a governor of a state. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. 
Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. In our Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Shadowlands, a new book by Anthony McCann, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff. This is from Chapter 1. My dear friends, Ammon Bundy began and begins again and again every time somebody hits play from 2016 all the way to the end of the Internet. It was the first day of a year that was to scramble an already agitated nation. Along the invisible pathways of the collective mind, the virtual tabernacle of the World Wide Web, Ammon Bundy, cowboy prophet and Facebook hero of liberty, was calling his people to the desert. Soon his friends in what they called the Patriot Movement were all hitting play, activating his familiar face, and sitting back in the glow of their screens as Ammon filled their hearts with urgent feeling. It was time, Ammon was saying, for what he called a hard stand. There had been some confusion about what he'd meant in previous communiques. He'd received some pushback, and he'd sat down now on the eve of calamity in front of the camera to try and clear things up. He's at his desk in a cowboy hat. He wouldn't appear in public much again without one until his arrest weeks later on a mountain road in the snow and pines of Oregon's Hard Luck National Forest. He's wearing a checkered western shirt and sporting what was for him a new, neatly trimmed growth of beard, further softening his visage. But even with a beard, Emmon Bundy couldn't help seeming what he was, a Latter-day Saint, clean-cut to the core. The strongest word I or anyone I know has yet heard him use is creep or hell. Or once, with evident discomfort and while making it clear he was quoting someone else, horse S-word. Before being summoned to the desert of Oregon by his god, that fall he'd been enjoying making apple pies for his Idaho neighbors, using apples from his new orchard and delivering the pies himself. But the quiet idyll of that autumn was already long over. This was to be his last video address to his online community before leading the very next day an armed takeover of Oregon's Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. A MacBook Air laptop is open on his desk, its icon doing its quiet, intrepid work to place all our American lives and dreams, even those of right-wing holy insurrection under its sign. Pale winter light comes through the blinds of the windows behind him. In the video, which he titled Dear Friends, Ammon explains how it was God who had guided him to Oregon two months earlier through news of the plight of two Harney County ranchers, a father and son, Dwight and Steve Hammond. Mandatory federal sentencing guidelines were about to send the Hammonds back to prison for arson charges, 
stemming from fires on public lands, charges for which they'd already served time. Others, including his own father, had been urging him to look into the story. Like the Hammonds, Ammon's father, Cliven, was also a rancher. The Bundy family had achieved a national profile for the dramatic culmination of their 20-odd years struggle with federal authorities over their grazing rights on Mojave Desert lands in southern Nevada. That conflict had come to a head in April of 2014 in a remarkable event, an armed standoff with federal agents that had resulted shockingly in a seeming victory for the Bundy clan. This standoff and the family's ongoing struggle with the aftermath of their life-changing actions had felt like enough to Ammon, who had recently moved far from southern Nevada to a new home with his wife and six children in the sagebrush of southern Idaho, on the far northern end of Mormon country on the outskirts of Boise. He himself was not even a rancher anymore, had not been for years. He ran a trucking fleet maintenance business, still headquartered in Arizona. As it turned out, even that move to Idaho would come to seem, to Ammon, a part of God's larger plan for himself, his friends, Harney County, and America. There had been something a little strange about the move, even at the time. He and his wife Lisa had felt a strong, simultaneous urge to relocate. It had been a feeling that had descended as if from nowhere. They couldn't understand it entirely, but they had followed it anyway and headed out in the spring of 2015, traveling about the Intermountain West looking at houses. Nothing had been quite right. But then on the very last day of their trip, they'd come to this very last house in a beautiful valley in Emmett, Idaho, and had known instantly that this was their place. It was one of many decisions Ammon would be guided to that year. That guidance to Ammon's mind had all been providential. How else to explain that he'd ended up moving to within three hours of remote Harney County, Oregon, where the whole Hammond story, which he had known nothing about at that time, had taken place. And now, here he was, just a few months later, barely settled into his new home, asking his online community to join him in Oregon, to take a momentous stand, a stand so big, he said, that nothing less than the future of American freedom might be at stake. After the move to Idaho, his next big revelation had come late one Monday evening on November 2015. On January 1st, seated in front of his camera, he told the tale of that night to his online followers. Lying in bed in his family's new home, tired after a long day, he'd received a message on his phone, a link to yet another article about the Hammonds. In the past, he'd shrugged off messages about the case. I felt that our family was fighting hard enough, he explained. We didn't need to go fight somebody else's battles. But this time, something was different. An urge quickly took possession of him, a sudden impulse to learn all he could about the Hammond family. He searched the internet and read everything he could find about the case. Unable to sleep, he read on Into the Dawn. The book is Shadowlands by Anthony McCain. Dave in Las Vegas. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, you know, every time when they bring up to Trump about right-wing extremists, he deflects to Antifa. Okay, so it seems to me like he's taking advantage of an information void, right, because how he likes to control the narrative. So I would think, so I have a lot of questions about, like, who is Antifa? Do they have a hierarchy? Do they have a president? Is there a spokesman? Uh, are they organized? The, the answer to all those questions is no. There, Antifa is, was the official position of the United States government up until the last three and a half years. We are anti-fascist. My father was an anti-fascist. He joined the U.S. Army in 1945 to go fight the fascists. 
You know, America has always been, or not always been, but, you know, certainly since World War II, has been an anti-fascist country. Antifa, as Joe Biden pointed out at the, at the debate, it's a philosophy, not an organization. Black Lives Matter is an organization. Now, you know, Trump likes to conflate them as if the anti-fascists are all black people and therefore, you know, white people should be opposing them. And that's essentially the story that's presented on Fox News and right wing hate radio. But, you know, it's it's just a BS story. The the reality is Antifa means anti-fascist. There are if you look at what's going on under the rubric or under the name of Antifa, you know, there are, uh, and, and there's a really fascinating piece about this in the New York Times, some really troubling um, uh, anarchist folks who are going out of their way to create violence and property damage that is basically being blamed on everybody else. And they think that this is going to bring about the revolution. And I've been talking about this for years. This goes, a lot of this goes back to the, the so-called Revolutionary Communist Party and Bob Avakian's little cult out of New York City. And, and, you know, they, they, they operate under all kinds of different names and they infiltrate other organizations. And then there are other, you know, other groups of people who just think, hey, you know, if I can smash windows and have it be blamed on somebody else, then all the better. But that's, that's about it. I mean, that's as close as we get to anything that comports with Trump's bizarre conspiracy theories. Got it, oh, Dave? Yeah, I- yeah, it's just, you know what I mean? It seemed to me like it would be beneficial for someone to step up if there's any prominent personalities or celebrities or someone that's, you know, just sort of codify. Because that way, you know, like... Well, Joe Biden did two nights ago. Yeah, he said it's not an organization. It's a philosophy. It's... Obviously. I mean, we're. I, I think yeah, most we all most are. Americans are anti-fascist. Up? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's the thing. You can't sign up. There's no there there. It's a philosophy. It's like... It's like you know, it's like being, a, you know, in, in favor of puppies or something. Come on. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's actually being opposed to the evil of fascism. That's what it is. And I would think every American would be proud to be Antifa. Joe in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Hey, Joe, what's up? Oh, hey, I'm just so glad to hear the uh, Michigan Attorney General refer to these actions as terrorism or them, the perpetrators, as terrorists. I've always said that the hate crime category had been created so that we didn't have to call conservative white people terrorists. They reserved that for Muslims and Black Lives Matter or whatever. And uh, this was good, and I think very different, different. And also it appears that these people, though they've been at it for a while, didn't get the uh, stand back, stand by message that Trump sent out. But that part of it yeah. is kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I'm very concerned about this. I think it's a very, you know, the fact that these things are moving into action is very troubling. Joe, thanks for the call. Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. And I totally agree with you on linking this plot to uh, Trump's Liberate Michigan shout out. David Sirota wrote a while back about a toxic slime oozing from the White House and and a metaphorical toxic slime. And this is definitely some uh, 
part of it. But um, regarding the debate, you know, I think it's always helpful to remember the Republicans always attack where they're weakest. So rather than be on the defense about fracking, which the latest polling in Pennsylvania actually show most people there oppose it, going forward, you know, Biden and Harris, they need to present their climate plan as a massive green jobs and infrastructure program and remind people Trump never delivered on his great infrastructure program. Where's the beef on that? And furthermore, Tom, when Trump and Pence try and portray Biden and Harris as puppets of the radical left, let's hope that Kamala and Joe keep exposing Trump as nothing more than the ugly, racist, cruel, ignorant face of oligarchy. He is the oligarch's puppet without the shiny veneer that Reagan put on it. The Trump Pence's vision of America first is billionaires and corporate fat cats first. To the rest of us, they say, let them eat cake. I mean, uh, I would have liked to have seen her say, hey, you're letting all these people suffer, tens of millions of people facing foreclosures and rent evictions and hunger issues. And where's this relief package? You guys have no empathy, no uh, regard for the vast majority of Americans. What do you say, Tom? Yeah, I think that's very well said, Jeff, and and I think that you have identified, you know, exactly what is going on. Thank you. Rick in Baltimore. Hey, Rick, what's up? Uh, Hey, Tom. Really getting sick and tired of seeing Democrat politicians, pundits, strategists go on TV and say, oh, well, we need to beat Trump by a lot. That way um, he'll accept the, the defeat. It'll be he won't be able to dispute it. No. It doesn't matter if we win by one electoral vote or a hundred. They don't get a curve. And newsflash, they're not going to care if we win by a landslide. They're not going to care. They're a cult. No, it's why it's why the Republicans in D.C. right now are having meetings about how to how to mobilize their own slates of electors in the states that they that they control, particularly That's Texas right. and Florida That's and right. Pennsylvania. We, we got to stop bringing a knife to a gunfight here. I see so yeah. many politicians and elected officials on, on our side going out there and saying, well, we need to beat him by a lot. Why do they get to have a curve and we don't? You know, yeah. it, it, we're setting us up. Well, I agree that we up. have to beat him by a lot, Rick, because because there's this thing called public opinion. And when public opinion was manipulated in the 2000 election to cause people to think that, well, probably George W. Bush won. So, yeah, let's go with that. When, in fact, the vote, you know, the, the, the recount never happened. It, it took a full year for that recount to happen. It was done by the newspapers, you know, up in New York, and they took all the ballots from Florida up there and they recounted them. It took a whole year. It came out in November of 2001. And the recount showed that Al Gore won Florida in 2000. Al Gore would have won the election if the Supreme Court had not stopped that recount. But it was close enough that, you know, the 500 vote margin, it was close enough that the Republicans were able to push it through. And Al Gore was like, okay, I don't want to cause a constitutional crisis. And, you know, I'll go along with this. I don't want that to happen again. You know, I want it to be absolutely clear and absolutely decisive. But that said, Rick, I completely agree with you. We need to, you know, we need to (laughs) claim every victory we have, even if it's a one vote victory. I'm with you. Don in Durant, Oklahoma. Hey, Don, what's on your mind? Yes, Tom. I was wanting to talk about some of the uh, magical Christians that say that, uh, you know, God has chosen Trump, so we got to vote for Trump because God chose him. And my point is, you know, Trump turns around and says he's the chosen one. And then he turns around the other day 
He says, well, God gave him the coronavirus, and he turns around because he doesn't get real sick. says, well, you know, God did this for me, you know, but he doesn't do it for everybody. And another point is, did God choose Andrew Jackson that chased the Indians off their land and murdered them? Did God choose Hitler, you know, to do what he did? So God has nothing to do with this election. It's the people of the United States that needs to vote. And that's all I got to yeah. say. Thank you. I, you're welcome. Uh, and, and very well said, Don. And, and, what, and, and what you're speaking to here is this uh, pernicious, and by the way, you know, Camp of the Saints in particular, Christianity plays a big role in this, right? You know, it's, it's like this, that what an excuse. But Christianity, like almost all other religions, arguably maybe not Buddhism, but Christianity has been used to justify the slaughter of people. Look at the Crusades, for goodness sakes. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Uh, Ari in Eureka, California. Hey, Ari, what's up? Thanks for listening to KGOE. Hey, Tom. <laughs> Thanks. I was one of those people who said Biden shouldn't debate Trump, but I totally changed my mind. I love the debate. I think Trump showed us exactly who he is and exactly what he stands for. And if that doesn't activate our base, I don't know what will. Also, I'm, I'm thinking... I'm thinking, you know, a guy who can't control himself for two minutes probably shouldn't be negotiating our foreign policy. Or have the nuclear codes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the, this, was the, this was one of the big takeaways. I forget whose book it was. I think it might have been McMaster, uh, one of his senior officials who was in the Pentagon, um, that there was that period of time where he was, or maybe it was John Kelly, he was actually sleeping in his clothes, in his uniform at the White House because he was afraid yeah. that Donald Trump was going to start a nuclear war with Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-un. Yeah. Uh -huh. Un. Um, I, this is even the people around him are afraid that he's going to do something insanely stupid like he's done over and over and over again throughout his business career, which has lost him hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you know, by his impulsive, stupid decision making. It's amazing. All right. Spot on. I'm with you. Uh, although I don't want to I have no no desire to see to to live through that experience again. Rick in Denver. Hey, Rick, what's up? Howdy. I have a couple of quick questions or a couple of quick comments. And the first one I would it. like to make is that after Trump had said that he wouldn't didn't want to accept the election results if he lost and that this this white supremacist donut stuff knuckleheads should just stand by i think that puts him squarely in the category of being guilty of conspiracy and if it leads to violence then he's guilty of sedition wow it's already led to violence but yeah i get it yeah and i would imagine that if we had a democratic president and there was a, a black group that he was cheering on that was committing violence against people that the Republicans right now would be trying to charge that president with sedition and impeach that president. Just look at it. So anyhow, yeah, spot on, Rick. Thank you. Rich in Indianapolis. Hey, Rich, what's up? Hey, Tom, thank you so much. I wanted to bring something to people's attention that is, say, I think a point that's going to make all the 1% kind of crazy about Trump. And the idea is that his being forced 
as this example of what rich people get to do with their taxes is now out in the uh, bloodstream of people's conversations in a way that it hadn't been. And this is something that we're not supposed to think about. I don't know if you can remember Leona Helmsley from Manhattan back mm-hmm. in the 80s. She was a hotelier. Only Her little people pay taxes. In, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad that it wasn't yeah. just me that remembered that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who could, who could have lived through that time and not remember it? Yeah, go ahead, Rich. So it's this idea that we're – okay, I'm in Indiana. And the, the Aryan Brotherhood has its headquarters here in Indiana. It used to be the Klan that was uh, given deference by Woodrow Wilson back in the day. And now we've got Trump giving deference to these other groups. And our intelligence agencies are saying these guys are a national security threat. And then Trump is right. playing footsie. And so between looking for support from these people that are so I'm, I'm reminded of the, the scene in Mississippi burning where uh, the, the, the agent uh, in charge of the investigation says, don't drag our investigation into the gutter. And then Gene Hackman spouts back, these people crawled out of the sewer. And, you know, we're mm. dealing with people that yeah. are just horrific. And so he's looking for that support taught by Putin, and then he's, you know, messing things up for the 1%. They're like, don't screw this up for us. You're this bad example of letting people know what we yeah, do. Yeah, David Sirota in his, in his newsletter this morning pointed out how, um, I'm doing this from memory, I don't have it right in front of me, but I'm pretty sure I'm remembering it correctly, that Steve Schwartzman is the head of Blackstone Group, this, uh, you know, billion-dollar investing company. And yeah, yeah. his net, and he's a multi, he's a uh, he's a billionaire. His net worth has increased 27 percent since the coronavirus started. Number one, and number two, he is donating millions. Like I think it was 25 million dollars. He is donating millions of dollars to Senate Republicans in order to get them reelected to keep in place his tax breaks. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's to keep his tax breaks in, in place. The billionaires are worried, Rich. They are very, very worried. Rich, thank you. Uh, you know, spot on. I think that, uh, you know, one of the major outcomes of this, just like, you know, the Nixon scandal. I remember the Nixon impeachment scandals. I remember the Nixon bribery scandals in 74. What came out of that was a lot of good reform. Hopefully that'll happen this again. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Gregory in Ventura, California. Hey, Gregory, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I don't understand how Reagan, not holding a federal position yet, was able to subterfuge Carter with the Iran situation. I recall like a chopper going down and we couldn't get our hostages out. But what did Reagan pull there? How did he do that? There's a book by a woman named Barbara Honecker who worked in the Reagan administration. In fact, the back cover of the book is a picture of her with Ronald Reagan on one side and George Herbert Walker Bush on the other side hugging her. She worked in their administration, I believe in the State Department. And the book is called October Surprise, and it lays it out in detail. Basically, in I don't recall the exact month. It's been four or five years since I've read the book. But early on in the campaign... Uh, Bill Casey, who was Reagan's campaign director, and a guy, as I recall, who was named Nir, N-I-R, maybe M-I-R, 
um, went to Paris and met with representatives of the Ayatollah. Uh, at that point, the hostages had been seized, but there was strong opposition to holding the hostages inside Iran. Bonnie Sauter, that's his full last name, his first name is Abul Hassan, as I recall, Abul Hassan Bonnie Sauter, ran for president of Iran in August and early September of 1980. So this is in the middle of the election. And his campaign platform was free the hostages. He was one of five or six candidates who ran. You can read an op-ed about this written by Bonnie Sauter himself in the Christian Science Monitor. If you just Google, you know, Bonnie, B-A-N-I-S-A-D-R and Christian Science Monitor and Iran or hostages or, you know, any of those words. And he tells the story. He just comes around and tells it. The former president of Iran. He ran. There were four or five other candidates. They were all running with one exception. They were all running on a platform of free the hostages, which overwhelming Iranian public support was in favor of. The guys who were holding the hostages were view, viewed as crackpots and cranks who were hurting the country. Bonnie Sauter won by 73%. The total vote of people who won, who wanted to free the hostages was over 90%. Again, Bonnie Sauter tells this story, and you can back it up with the news reports in the time. Bonnie Sauter then tells the story of how in early September he became president of Iran and he went to the Ayatollah and said, I just ran on a platform of releasing the hostages. And this was his first discovery of this whole thing, right? I ran wow. on, a, on a platform of releasing the hostages. Let's do it. And the Ayatollah said, no, number one, we can't release the hostages because we've got to deal with the Reagan campaign that after the election is over, um, he's going to ship us weapons uh, you know, because our entire military is American manufactured. The Ayatollah, the, uh, the, you know, the Shah was buying it all from the U.S. And, you know, for, for the last year, they've been refusing to sell us replacement parts. And so we're going to get all these replacement parts and new missiles and, and all this stuff. And, and by the way, there's already, we've already received a shipment of tires via Israel from friends of Ronald Reagan's. Oh, and boy. So, I mean, it's all right there. Um, I lay this out in more detail in my book on the Supreme Court, uh, you know, and the reason why it has something to do with the Supreme Court is that Reagan winning, the, you know, this whole thing for Reagan winning was set up in part by right-wingers who wanted Reagan to pack the court for them, which he did. And so, uh, but the story is no secret anymore. It's, uh, it, Gregory, uh, complete with, uh, you know, hot links or source material or whatever, all through the end notes, you can read the whole sordid story in the hidden history of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. Today on the Tom Hartman University Book Club, we're reading from Barbara Honiger's book, October Surprise. The October Surprise the book is about was the 1980 Reagan campaign led by Bill Casey, who Reagan later made the head of the CIA, but he was Reagan's campaign director in 1980, about their actions with the Iranian government cutting a deal where if the Iranians would hold the hostages throughout the election of 1980 to make Jimmy Carter look bad and weak, then if they won the election, they would sell weapons to Iran, which, of course, is a deal that they kept. We know of this as the Iran-Contra scandal. So I'm reading from the very last chapter. It's the epilogue, and it's titled A Kinder, Gentler Nation. President Reagan signed intelligence authorizations in 1984 and 1985, which were considered licenses to kill, according to top government officials. As we have seen, Oliver North and Amiram Nir's U.S.-Israeli covert operations were authorized by a still-secret accord 
never revealed to congressional intelligence committees as required by law, which may have also authorized political assassinations in the name of counterterrorism. We have seen that Vice President George Bush, this is the elder, met with Amiram Nir in Israel in late 1986 when he could have signed the accord with Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres, for whom Nir worked. Author Seymour Hirsch has charged Oliver North with being President Reagan's assassination planner. We've reviewed reports that North boasted that anyone who leaked or threatened to reveal the administration's secret Iran initiative would be killed, and that some of the North Secord Hakim team were reportedly involved in political assassinations under the umbrella of counterterrorism. Given this context, it's instructive to note what has happened to many of the individuals who were reportedly involved in or knew about the secret negotiations between Iran and the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign and or about secret U.S. arms deliveries to the Khomeini regime in the early 1980s. So then she goes through the list of people. Dead. William Casey, CIA director, who reportedly attended meetings in Paris, France on October 19 and 20, 1980 with Iranian officials and agents of French intelligence to arrange an arms for hostages delay deal with Iran. The morning of Casey's first scheduled under oath testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee on the secret Iran initiative, he was struck by seizures in his CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and underwent speech incapacitating left brain surgery shortly thereafter. Had he lived to testify, according to a lifelong friend and counsel, Milton Gould, Casey would have told, quote, the entire truth, end quote. He died on May 6, 1987. Dead. Imiram Nir died November 30th, 1988, in a plane crash in Mexico. Nir, who resigned in March of 1988, had been chief counterterrorism advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres. He was Oliver North's Israeli counterpart in the Near North covert operations covered by a still-secret accord reportedly signed by Perez and President Reagan, or according to some U.S. government sources, by someone at a lower level. Easily, Vice President George Bush, during his late 1986 meeting with Nir in Jerusalem, when Nir briefed Bush on the Iran arms initiative. Informed sources suspect sabotage of Nir's plane when Oliver North sought to introduce the secret U.S.-Israel accord as part of the defense in his trial and conspiracy charges, the Reagan-Bush administration refused to produce the document, and the conspiracy charge was dropped. Near died two months before the start of Oliver North's trial. The truth of the final entry in Michael Ledeen's book, Perilous Statecraft, may have something to do with his timely death. Quote, insofar as anyone may have had something dramatically new to add to our knowledge of Iran-Contra, it is likely to be Amaram Near. Dead William Buckley, CIA station chief in Beirut. And it continues. October Surprise by Barbara Hunter. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 